Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Eric Rees, the founder and CEO of LTSE, the company that's affiliated with the SEC-approved long-term stock exchange, which seeks to build a new relationship between companies that are built to last and the stakeholders who believe in them. Eric is an entrepreneur who created the Lean Startup methodology and wrote the New York Times bestseller, The Lean Startup. He was named by Fortune to its 2018 40 Under 40. Our conversation covers Eric's early startup experience, the core principles of a lean startup, his path to creating LTSE, key components of its business philosophy, value proposition, and business model, and the application of lean startup principles to building this business. LTSE's mission is extraordinarily important to improve investment outcomes in public markets for all of our benefit. I encourage you to join the LTSE's Long-Term Investor Coalition, which you can find on its website, ltse.com, or by emailing ltic at ltse.com. And ask questions of companies and managers you meet with to keep this movement top of mind. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric Rees. Eric, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how did you get started on the entrepreneurial path? Certainly was not any kind of master plan, let me tell you that. I grew up programming computers. I loved technology from an early age. My dad brought home a beige IBM XT 
you know, the five and a quarter inch floppy disk when I was a kid. And that's all I ever wanted to do was program computers. So I was a computer science major. I was in college during the dot-com bubble. I had just done an internship at Microsoft. I was a precocious computer science programmer. That was my whole thing. And the dot-com bubble hit. And all of a sudden, everybody wasn't going to work at a big company. Everyone was starting their own company. And so some friends of mine in my dorm, rather than become summer interns again, that whatever year that was, 1999, we decided, well, we'll start a software company. That's what everyone's doing. So I got bitten by the bug during the bubble. Didn't go very well in <laughs> retrospect. One of my new investing rules is by the time the bubble gets to New Haven, Connecticut, it's a little bit towards the tail end of things. So if you've seen the movie, The Social Network, I got to have the first half of the movie experience, not quite the second half where we needed to sue each other because we didn't make any money. And it was a fascinating, and now I can laugh about it. Of course, at the time, I was devastated. Dot-com bubble crashed. All of our investors went bankrupt. Company collapsed shortly thereafter. And I didn't really understand why. And so that was my entry into entrepreneurship. And I was like, well, that that was something I want to understand better. I want to try that again, but I want to do it right. Whatever right means the next time. That's how I got into it. And what'd you do from there? So I actually joined a startup in Silicon Valley. So I just came out to the Valley. I sent my resume around places. I was thinking about big company, small company. I didn't know what it was going to be. And the most remarkable thing happened. I was interviewing in Silicon Valley, in Seattle, in Boston, in New York. And everywhere else, the fact that I had done this startup in my dorm and it utterly failed was a black mark on my record that people thought that was dodgy. And in Silicon Valley, everyone felt differently. Every person said, this is brilliant. Congratulations on having the ambition to try something. Tell me why it didn't work. And I'd explain all the mistakes that we made. And they said, great, you got a very valuable education and somebody else paid for it. We didn't have to pay for it. So what were those early mistakes that you remember telling at the time? At the time, I really didn't understand. I can't imagine. I remember once someone asked me, what mistakes did you make at the level of strategy? And I said, oh, we didn't have the right product. They're like, no, 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 but at the level of strategy. And I realized in the moment of the job interview that I didn't know what the word strategy really meant. I didn't know how to answer the question. I was like, I don't know. We didn't have a strategy. So how could we have made a strategy mistake? So it gives you a sense of the level of sophistication. But to 20-year-olds, we really didn't know what we were doing. But I would talk about the fact that we had misunderestimated what the level of paid consumer demand would be. We had this product that was free to use, and then businesses were going to pay us for access to it. And we got the free to use part down, but the paid part didn't quite follow. We got that wrong. We built this very sophisticated business plan. I mean, you would weep to read it. We treated it like a a PhD thesis. So we were very high IQ, very well-prepared students. What we were prepared to do was build spreadsheets and documents, and we had this beautiful business plan, and it had an incredibly sophisticated financial model attached to it, including data drawn from the census and from like the root cause data, really all the way down to the ground built up. And so we calculated the economic value to us of every customer that we signed up, how much we'd be able to make. And it was just very fine-grained and, of course, utterly, utterly wrong in every way. But it seemed really brilliant. We were able to raise money on the basis of that plan. We actually came to believe the forecast as if it was the truth which is a common mistake now. I teach people in entrepreneurship not to do, but at the time, that just seemed like what everybody was doing. We were praised for our discipline, for our analytical skills, like the investors that we had thought we were doing a great job. So it was just, it was really a complete disaster, but we didn't know it at the time. How did you take the lessons and apply it to your next startup? The next idea I had was I'll apprentice myself to better entrepreneurs than me. First company I joined in Silicon Valley had, at the time I joined, I was like employee number 30 maybe raised tens of millions of dollars from really good venture capitalists, had an amazing team. People who were involved in this company went on to found many, many billions of dollars worth of other startups. We all learned very valuable lessons, but not this one didn't quite make it. Company was a virtual reality company way ahead of its time. And the business plan was as follows. We would spend five years in stealth R&D. No customers, no outside input. The business plan for this company, also beautiful artifact, had to be checked out of the company library. Every copy was numbered. You had to check it back in. It was paranoid about leaks. So five years stealth R&D, no customer feedback, and then big global worldwide launch, after which the hockey stick would commence. And I remember shortly after the launch, we were looking at the results, numbers, and we said, wow, this business plan is genius. We're right on plan, on budget. It says here this month, on this day, at this time, we should have almost no customers and almost no revenue. We're on plan, on budget. Outstanding. Hockey stick to commence imminently. And then it didn't. 
And if customers had read the business plan and done what it said, we would all have been rich. And it was such a shock to me because I was like, wait a minute. This process is no different than what I did in my dorm room. We just lost two orders of magnitude more money. Then I was really upset. I was like, okay, I did it the way it seemed on TV. Then I went to the secret apprenticeship of the brotherhood of the entrepreneur, and it still got the same result. And that really primed me later in my career to then be very hungry for new ideas about how we could operate a different way. And how'd you go learning what the right ideas would be? Well, a lot of trial and error. So I tried it the conventional way very hard. Several of us who were refugees from that failure started another company together. And all we wanted to do was make new mistakes. We were just like, okay, the conventional thing has really let us down. Let's just try some things that were different. And I look back on that now, and I was still very young to be trusted as a co-founder of that company. I was the technical co-founder. And I said, guys, I think we should try to use the scientific method and apply experimentation to everything we do with technology, which at the time was a very radical idea. I thought that customers should be involved in our development with us from the early months of the company, not waiting until years later. I thought that we should ship the software, get it into production faster than was considered normal. We practiced something that we would now call continuous deployment. And I had all these funky ideas about how the company should be run. And I look back on that, I say, what a leap of faith of my co-founders not to strangle me, but to say, all right, let's try it a different way. And so we built that company in a very different way. It was considered really strange by our contemporaries, but we'd been burned. So we were open to try something different. And we got a really different result. All of a sudden, those techniques were working, and we were able to gain success, and investors came on board, and all of a sudden, the problem was no longer how do we get success. My problem was, how do I explain this success to people? Because we're doing everything wrong and getting this good result. A lot of people didn't understand it. And you know, when I'm hiring people who are older than me and more experienced than me, and I bring them into the company, and we bring investors in and go through their due diligence process, and they were confused about how we operated things, and it took me a long time to go on this kind of intellectual journey. Like I kind of figured it out practically through trial and error. But then it took much longer time to figure out how do I explain it to people? Why does it work? And people would ask me, why do we do it this way? And I'm like, I, I don't know. It just seems right to me. And eventually we were able to, to develop a theory to explain it. And I did a lot of learning and I tried to draw on as best I could the previous management theories that mattered from customer development to agile development, what's called DevOps in the operations world. And of course, lean manufacturing most famously, because I wound up calling the theory lean startup. And so you figured out the theory and you're applying it. And at some point in time, you just decided to write it up. Well, that's a funny story too. That was not my master plan. Silicon Valley has changed so much so fast. I got to take you back in time. So in 2001, I moved out to the Valley. So I've been here in almost 20 years. And after I had that failed startup, that was 2000 four or five, something like that, that we did the startup where we started to experiment with these lean startup ideas. And by 2008, right before the crisis, I was starting to think about doing my next thing, move on from that company. Company had been successful and the theory was starting to get some buzz. And I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll write a blog to share these lessons with people. And here's why. I was being asked over and over again to come visit other companies and give them advice. So VCs had heard that I had this magic dust I could make engineering teams hyper-productive. So could I meet company X, sprinkle some of that dust on them? And I would always explain, no, sir, it's not me and my dust. There's no magic. It's just a better theory and process. And VCs would be like, yeah, okay, whatever. Just go sprinkle the dust. So I would go to these meetings and people would lose it. I can't even explain to you. I would go in there and I explain the, the theory of lean startup and people would start yelling. Like that, that was crazy. It could never work. I was giving them bad advice. And I realized at a certain point, I had to stop the meeting and say, listen, you called me. I'm here as a favor. You asked me to come to this meeting. I'm not telling you a theory. I'm telling you what worked for me. Take it or leave it. I know what do you want from me. And so it was happening over and over again. I was really confused. I thought at the time that I mean, I was really bad at giving advice and I should hang up my spurs. I was really having a, a lot of self-doubt about it. And my theory was I'll write these ideas down, these stories. I'll write them down on my blog. Next time someone asks me for advice, I'll point them to the blog and say, listen, first read this blog post. If you think I'm crazy, don't call. Like, let's not have the meeting, right? It was like, and I was so afraid of putting the ideas out there in public that I did it anonymously. It was not considered kosher in those days for a startup founder to have a blog. Nobody blogged in those days. Mark Andreessen was like the only VC who had a blog, and it was kind of a little bit of side thing. People didn't know about it. Founders didn't blog. There were a very few people. So I was afraid that my reputation would be suspect. And then, of course, I created this mystery 
who is this new guy with this blog? And you know, and then the blog took off and I eventually, I came out and explained it and it took over my life. But that was not a master plan. It just kind of happened that way. And then when the financial crisis hit, it was very convenient to be known as the lean startup guy at a time when everyone was trying to save money and cut burn. And of course, my theory is not actually useful for that. It's not about low cost. It's about efficient use of proceeds. So people would call me and say, can you get me out of my office lease? You help me save money on furniture. And I was like, no, but I can tell you about the build, measure, learn feedback loop. And you can imagine how those conversations went. And what were some of the core principles of the Lean Startup? So I've kind of already told you the story indirectly, but now I'll tell it to you formally. The most famous ones are things like minimum viable product. So MVP is a bit of jargon that if you've heard in the business world, that's my fault. Sorry. The idea is you have a business plan. We're used to thinking of business plans as forecasts of what's supposed to happen in the future, but they're not. They are hypotheses, what we call leap of faith assumptions about what might happen if our theory is correct. So rather than try to build the best possible product, the most perfect product according to the hypotheses, we want to run the best possible experiment. Best possible experiment is what we call the minimum viable product. So a smaller, simpler, initial version of the product that allows us to start that learning discovery process sooner. Then we call that process the build, measure, learn feedback loop. We measure the time it takes between when we have an idea and when we validated that idea and the next idea and the next idea. So a highly iterative way of working, scientific way of working. If the leap of faith assumptions turn out to be incorrect, instead of having the company go out of business, as I did in my early career, instead, we have enough runway, we save enough money, they were able to pivot, have a change in strategy without a change in vision. It sounds so obvious. But like that was considered incredibly controversial in the startup world. Even to this day, it's not a universal theory that people adhere to. But it's helped in the intervening years now tens of thousands of entrepreneurs to kind of structure their thinking in a way that, boy, I really wish I had had those tools when I was first starting out. So let's pivot a little bit to what you're doing now. And where did the idea of the long-term stock exchange come from? Well, since we have time, I'll tell you the real story. This is exactly how it happened. So in 2010, I signed a book contract to write a book called The Lean Startup. Well, I wound up really changing my life when it finally came out in 2011. But during the process of writing the book, I didn't know how this was all going to turn out. And I felt a real sense of obligation to make the book as rigorous as I possibly could. I did two things. One is I was traveling constantly that year, 18 months, however long it was, testing the ideas in the book. I did constant workshops and speeches and working with startups of all different kinds and traveling to different regions. And I, I was just testing the ideas. I would try to explain it to people, see if they understood it, see how that kind of feedback I got. I, I had lots of people in the early days who just didn't understand it or they took it too far or they, you know, like all kinds of misconceptions that you can address that way. And then when I was on the plane or, you know, anytime I had downtime, I was reading business books. I read Every business book, every economics book, I mean, everything I get my hands on because I was terrified that someone had already said what I wanted to say. And I would finally, one day I'd read a book and I'd be like, oh, well, this is pointless. I'm not going to write this book after all. Someone already said it. So, you know, I, I went and I tracked down Peter Drucker's out of print book about entrepreneurship, just in case Peter Drucker got there first. And I read not just Crossing the Chasm, but all of Jeff Moore's like really obscure books that no one ever talks about. And I went back and read The Principles of Scientific Management and the old like scientific management pamphlets and Alfred Sloan's writing. I mean, I really, I was really into the history and theory of management. And if you do that kind of deep reading, you notice certain patterns that I guess in business, we, these are like truths that we know, but we kind of forget about, and then we have to be reminded. So one of them is, if you want to operate something like the Toyota production system, and a management system that can operate for decades and produce world-beating performance, the evidence is super clear that you must have a philosophy of long-term thinking in order for that to happen. I said, great. So I used to, I worked into my workshops. Oh, everybody, by the way, make sure you think long-term. It was like a little aside. Oh, make sure that to do this. And I would start getting these questions. Where people say, well, hold on. If you're saying that we should think long-term, why are you also helping us build venture-backed companies? I said, well, what's the problem with that? I said, well, you're going to take them public. And everybody knows that the public markets are the most short-term environment on the planet. You can't have a long-term philosophy as a public company. And I said, oh, no, I'm sure that's a misconception. So it is public. I'm sure it's fine. I was on my research questions list. Why is it? that people have this perception that public markets are so short-term when they must not be. And then I started reading about, basically, Toyota has been grandfathered into the modern economy, but we don't build companies anymore with Toyota-style governance. That's considered antiquated. And people are like, well, Jeff Bezos thinks long-term. 
I'm like, okay, but then you study the history of Amazon. That's a very unusual, singular situation that's unlikely to ever be repeated in history. And I started to think, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Why don't we build companies with a long-term governance paradigm if we know that long-term thinking is the key to financial performance? So I was on a plane. I was reading yet another book about Toyota. I think it was The Toyota Way by Jeff Liker. Great book. And it just struck me like a lightning bolt that if companies are not governed for the long term, then they're worth less money. They're distracted. People are playing the beat and raise game. They are distracted from their fundamental mission of serving customers. Therefore, they're worth less money. Therefore, investors are worse off too. But that can't be right. Most investors are long-term. Pension funds are long-term. Retirement funds, individual people, planning for those are the longest. And I said, aha, what's needed is a way for the long-term investors and the long-term companies to get together and like have a new social contract between them. And I was like, gosh, what could be an institution that regulates the behavior of investors and managers at the same time? And I was like, oh, sounds like a stock exchange. And I just wrote it in the manuscript. I literally was on my plane. I was like, you know, this is a good idea. I have a chapter at the end of the book with good ideas for the future. Somebody should really do this. Someone should create a long-term stock exchange or LTSE. And I sketched out in a couple of paragraphs how I thought it should work. And that was it. I thought my work was done. I'll go back on to being an author. And that was my very unlikely entry into eventually building that company because years passed and nobody took me up on the offer to do it. And this is one of those ideas that wouldn't leave me alone. I couldn't sleep. It would come to me all the time. Why is no one doing this? And I thought, well, let me at least investigate it enough to find out what would be required. And next thing you know, here I am. So let's dive in a little bit on what the exchange is from the company perspective. What's required of companies to be listed on the long-term stock exchange? Yeah, so we are a national securities exchange. We're in the same regulatory category as NYSC or NASDAQ. So this is not an alternative exchange or a venture exchange. This is the real thing. We want companies who list with us to be real public companies. So like the core idea is that companies need to go public again. All growth companies, the average time to becoming public has gone way, way, way up. That means that the great public has been blocked out of the ability to invest in growth. And everyone, I'm sure your listeners know this phenomenon very well, but it's a travesty. And like... This is a policy outcome that no one should tolerate. So our view is to make being a public company, a true public company, more attractive to the kind of the next generation of companies that really have a long-term multi-stakeholder view of what their mission is. So we do that by being different in three ways. We have a different business philosophy than the incumbents. We have a different value proposition that we offer to companies. And then we have a different business model. We want to be able to say to a long-term investor, to a long-term company, you're the customer, not traders. So the listing standards require companies to adhere to a set of principles around long-term thinking, around sustainability, around diversity, around multi-stakeholder governance. And in order to do that, that requires them to have a different relationship with their long-term investors and with the public at large. Each principle sounds kind of highfalutin and abstract, but we are a mechanism to translate those abstract principles into specific operational mechanisms for the company so that investors can rely on the fact that companies that are listed with us are doing something truly differentiated. And I guess I should also say that because we're a stock exchange, we're integrated with the financial system to such a degree that companies that list with us can be guaranteed the same access to the full liquidity of the public markets. So we don't interfere with their ability to raise capital. We don't interfere with the need for investors to get liquidity in the short term. What we do is get companies and their long-term investors have greater engagement, greater interest alignment so that they can kind of be, be partners in co-determination going forward. So what are the criteria that a company has to meet in order to get a listing on LTSE? So there are financial and technical criteria that are the same as the incumbents. Everything we do is a superset of the legacy exchange standards. Then we have a series of principles, and I'll just give you one example, that we then translate into policies, which then become binding on the company's operations. So starting with a high-level principle, let me walk you through from the principle all the way down to like the market microstructure, what the consequences are. The principle is that companies should know who their long-term investors are and reward them accordingly, which sounds kind of obvious. If I talk to private company CEOs, they're like, yeah, duh. How could you run a company if you don't know who your investors are? 
but public companies don't know. It's hilarious. They pay for a service, which I think is the most funny name of a product ever, called stock surveillance. Like, like they're spies. You got to hire the CIA to go surveil your investors to find out who they are. Stock surveillance can tell you approximately who your investors probably were 90 days ago. It's time delayed. It's not very accurate. It's not what is needed. To have true partnership, you need to know who's on your cap table. And if you want to provide rewards, it has to be accurate data. So we allow companies to really understand who their long-term investors are by creating a mechanism for investors to make an SEC-regulated disclosure to the company of the name of the beneficial owner of the security. So not, oh, most companies know like J.P. Morgan, that's a huge block of stock, but they don't know who's who. And a lot of like pension funds and other asset owners, their stock is held through many different entities. And so the company doesn't really know who's on the other end of that transaction. Stock is held in street name. This allows the long-term investor to reveal the name of the beneficial owner to the company. That can begin a vesting process that allows the company to design a series of rewards that they want to give to those investors. The rewards can be things like additional voting rights, additional economics, better information disclosure, or my favorite is just superior capital raising tools. So one of our ideas is just to see kind of how the principle can then translate into a practical software solution. We talk about that the long-term investors are the citizens of the republic, different from the tourists. And tourists aren't bad. They're just different. So the idea that tourists and citizens should be treated the same, in political science, everyone understands this idea. Somehow in investing, we get confused. So let's say a company would like to make it easy for the citizens to buy and sell large blocks of their stock without having to get front run or divide the block into 50 share lots. You know, it's really trade execution. We have the most efficient trading markets in history. If you want to trade a 50 share lot, it's great. But what if you actually have conviction about a company, you want to own 10 million shares? Very difficult. So we have a mechanism that allows the long-term and certified long-term investors of a company to bid directly to the company, purchase stock directly from them. And we can consummate that transaction after market close for more like 50 basis points rather than 4 or 5%. So it's still an underwritten transaction. We still partner with an underwriter, but it's a benefit to the to the investor, it's a benefit to the company. And it sounds like a very technical thing, like, oh, we're doing more efficient transactions, but actually it's also a mission thing. The company is then able to guarantee that more of its stock is being held by the good long-term holders who are their partners in governing the company. Let me dive into that a little bit. It sounds like it would be super complex. Let's just pick on economic differentiation. The company has to know who every individual owner is and then be tracking how long they've held the stock. And then is this a sliding scale? Is it the long-term bucket and the short-term bucket? Like, How do you figure all that out? Yeah, we provide all that software. It's built into the exchange itself, which is part of what, like people have tried things like this before, but they've always been too cumbersome. We have found a way to do it that's quite automatic. So I'll give you an example. So the specific formula of exactly how the reward works is still at the company's discretion. We don't force them to have a one-size-fits-all. But imagine someone said, well, I want to pay a progressive dividend that's proportional to holding period when I eventually do dividends. So in the far future, when I'm going to pay out a dividend, people who've held longer will be first in line and they'll get a disproportionate share of the dividend and it will meter down for a little less. So we can track all that ownership. That's no problem. We can keep track of who's held for what amount of time. It's built into our platform. But we also, we're integrated with this very obscure SEC system. The SEC system is really smart. If somebody changes the beneficial ownership of the security, the individual share is automatically deregistered from the company's books. So it's not just if you sell your position. If you trade out of your position, obviously you forfeit the reward. But like, let's say you build a total return swap or you loan the shares out for shorts or you do any activity that builds a derivative out of the economic ownership of the share, that automatically deregisters you from the ledger that we maintain on behalf of the company. So the investor doesn't have to do anything extra to keep track of that. It's automatic. And then we provide each investor with a dashboard that just shows them, here's your trading behavior, here's what you've done, and therefore here's the reward that you qualify for. You also have this differentiation with index funds and passive investors and active investors. So in that framework, if you think about a Vanguard or BlackRock or State Street, they are, by design, going to be very long-term owners. And yet some people say, well, they're passive owners. That's not really... Yeah. the kind of ownership you want. How do you think about that? This is a point of great controversy right now because many of those funds outsource their governance to third parties. 
And there's a big debate about whether that's appropriate or not. What I think is interesting is the whole logic of passive investing is that you're free riding on the price discovery of others. That's by design, and that's why it works. And yet spending on governance-related research is a, is a cost center for the passive guys that they don't really want. So if there was a way for them to free ride on the governance decisions of the other long-term investors, they'd probably be happier with that if it drove their cost structure down for their investors. So I think that's ultimately, we'll have to find some way to accomplish that. In the short term, I don't expect that most passive investors will do this registration that we're talking about because they don't care about the governance side of companies. It's just not a big part of their important thesis. But again, it would be up to them to choose. You start with long-term ownership, which is kind of the incentives of long-term of the holders. What about the incentives of company executives? So I've been talking about only one of our principles, just to show you how deep the stack goes. We won't even get into how long-term investors can have superior trade execution and pay lower trading fees, and we take it all the way down to the microstructure. But yeah, we have a principle around executive compensation. Executive compensation is out of control, and many companies are being destroyed by the toxic waste of bad comp. I was just with a private company a couple days ago, and uh, I was doing an all-hands meeting with the founder who I know, talking about Lean Startup and LTSE, and this is a company with 1,200 employees. They will be public two or three years from now. So it's not like they're urgently going public, but it's on on their minds. Their employees have a lot of illiquid net worth. All of a sudden, this is a topic of conversation. And yet, the founder said to me, our biggest competitor is a public company. In the last five years, they have spent 120% of earnings on buybacks. But I don't understand why. Why would they do that when we're coming for them? And they know it. Shouldn't they be investing in technology to modernize their operations? He's like, I love it. I'm glad they're doing that. But can you explain it to me? And I said to him, I was in front of all his employees. I said, look, I don't even know the name of the company. You haven't told me. I don't know your industry. I have no idea. I don't know nothing about this company. But I can tell you everything about their executive compensation system. Why are they doing this? I know why, right? Why is CEO tenure collapsing to short? It's like, why, 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 why? We know why. We all know it. I meet long-term investors now who tell me these just ridiculous stories about, you get the phone call, sorry, the CEO needs a new boat. So we're doing this one-time comp thing that, what are you going to do about it? As more people are passive, you have to own my stock, sucker, so I can do whatever I want. I mean, it's just really bad behavior. So we have principles around certain compensation instruments that companies can't do. And it generally require companies to disclose how they've created interest alignment between executives and their long-term investors. That's a really big, important reform area for us. What are some of the other key principles? It's funny. I get accused sometimes of sounding too idealistic. And then other times, it's like, is it practical enough? Is it idealistic enough? Like We have this bifurcation in our world of people who pursue like principles and philosophy and then people who pursue like technical solutions. And we're trying to do both. So we think that investors are best served when companies have a multi-stakeholder focus. And I was just talking to someone who was like, multi-stakeholder always makes me nervous. Well, it sounds like a bunch of do-gooders. Then he read our actual filing with the SEC. He's like, I'm suspicious, but this sounds pretty good because it's all about the long term. He's like, what's the catch? Like, There's no catch. Investors do better when companies consider the impact that they have on their employees and their communities and their customers and their partners, vendors and suppliers. This is like a Deming idea going back almost 100 years now. You squeeze your suppliers too much, you wind up with low quality. You destroy the communities in which you operate, you know, the public comes for you. You build products that are unhealthy for human beings, you come to regret it in the long run. So the question I've always asked is, why do human beings care about financial metrics? People always like, oh, the middle managers are obsessed with EBITDA, they're obsessed with gap finance, but why? People aren't born caring about financial metrics. Companies build very detailed operating mechanisms to make sure everyone in the company knows the financial metrics and believes in them. So we require companies to, at the board level, identify a committee of the board who has a fiduciary obligation to identify who the company's key stakeholders are, identify what are the effects that you want to have on those stakeholders, then have the company produce and publish a set of metrics that correspond to those effects. And then they have to explain at the policy level the operational mechanism the company has to make the stakeholder metrics at least as important as the financial metrics. And it's very straightforward. It's like if you actually really care about whether your product is in fact healthy for people or not, a lot of companies do this research and then bury it. You know, like, like the technology industry, we've been having this problem a lot lately where we 
We commissioned research to find out that social media makes people depressed. And then we didn't take it seriously. But what if there had been someone whose job was to take it seriously? What if executive compensation was tied to performance against those metrics? Like we know what performance looks like. We know what are the leading indicators of future growth. So we just require companies to build and disclose those mechanisms. One of the other key things you hear about disclosure in the public markets is the quarterly cycle and increasingly earnings forecasts and what that does for the behavior and the financial metrics of the company. Yeah. How have you addressed that? We will have subject to SEC approval. I should be saying that more often probably in this conversation. Obviously, everything I'm talking about is subject to regulatory approval. We will have very strict limits on guidance. I think quarterly guidance is very dangerous. And it's not actually... Like, people do it for good reasons. They start doing it for good reasons. If you talk to companies, they say, why do you give guidance? Especially companies that haven't done it before. Why do you start? They're trying to help analysts produce better consensus forecasts on how the business is doing. But the problem is that once you start giving quarterly guidance, the temptation is there to start sandbagging the guidance so as to beat it. Analysts start offsetting that sandbag with an offset, and then you're like playing this game with each other where no one believes anything that's being reported, and it eventually leads into a destructive path. So our view about guidance is twofold. One, there are better ways to educate analysts than guidance. So if you're going to take guidance away, you can't, like, none of our rules, we never take any disclosure away. We're trying to maximize transparency and create more disclosure. So we just think it's more effective, rather than just say arbitrarily this is the guidance for the quarter, to educate analysts about the long-term leading indicators of future growth. So here are the investments that the company's making. Here's the evidence we have that those are starting to pay off. And here's the mechanism by which that should translate into growth future forecasts. And then we have a strict limit on the situations in which a company can give forecasts that are denominated in gap financials and the time to rate. Like there's just some guidelines about that that we think make guidance a more limited tool to be used appropriately. And it can't be used in conjunction with buybacks. So we also require, or we will require, companies to disclose their, for example, EPS, net of buybacks. You can still do the buybacks, but you have to disclose how much of your improvement on an earnings basis is being driven by buybacks versus actual fundamental improvement. So as you go and build out the roster of companies that list, a lot of what you're talking about, so companies day to day are running and trying to make incremental improvements and changes, but there's momentum and they're all moving down a certain path. And a lot of what you're talking about, even if the company executives and the board will nod their heads and say, absolutely, this would yeah. help us. It's really a significant shift in the current practices. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times private companies that are looking to go public. Do you start building out the roster by looking at the future public companies? Yeah. Yeah, this goes back to Lean Startup. Who are the early adopters? Everyone in technology knows the phrase early adopters, but people don't realize that there's a rigorous definition. Early adopters are theory. It's uh, what we used to be called lead users, and there's a whole research to who's likely to be an early adopter. We have to find companies that not only have a problem, but know they have a problem and are actively seeking a solution. Frankly, that's not most public companies. Most public companies have a problem, but they don't know it. Or if they do have it, they view it, it's like they're stuck. There's nothing they can do about it. So we seek out the next generation great companies that in any other era would already be public. Who should be public? Who the public would love to invest in? Who should be making their growth available, but have chosen to stay private because of these issues. And we work very closely with them to build a governance system that they think makes sense. And once we are able to prove to the world that this new system works better, then people who are not quite the marquee next generation names will start to do it. And then people will be able to follow that and we'll be able to build a movement of support behind it. But yeah, we will start with next generation companies and then work our way backwards from that. How far along are you in that process? Well, we cannot legally solicit anybody to list on the exchange yet because it's not operational yet. So we have a number of companies that have signed a non-binding letter of intent to do it. So we're very confident in the pipeline, but that's as far as we've been able to take it so far. How do you look at the other trends of some of the larger private companies going public, direct listings as competition? They're solving for some of the same things you're talking about. Yeah, I think reform of the IPO process is way overdue. And our allies, the people we spend the most time with, are asset owners, even more than asset managers, who are absolutely left out of the roadshow process, the IPO. I mean, I, the people we talk to, who, who I think are the best investors on the planet, the most long-term partners for a company to have, literally can't get on the roadshow because they don't trade enough to get, you know how it is, I have to explain it to you. It's outrageous. And yet for all of the flaws of the IPO process, it's still an event that only happens on one day. So we don't actually focus on it. 
the way you go public, the metaphor we use for people, it's like a wedding. Having an excellent wedding planner, good plan. Being in a beautiful venue, absolutely. Do sometimes people criticize you for spending too much money on your wedding? You know, we're human. But at the end of the day, it's over and then you're married. And it's the marriage you gotta live with for the rest of your life. So our view is once companies become public, what's their experience and how do we make that better? That's more important than the wedding itself. And as you talk to these companies and prepare, hopefully not too distant future for these listings to be real, is the plan to have them only list on the LTSC or are you doing that in conjunction with dual listing on existing exchanges? Yeah, we support dual listing. And I think that's a very sensible thing for the early adopters to do. First of all, some people have always wanted to go ring the bell. God bless. But also, like, why take extra risk? The reason that incumbent exchanges want listings so badly is not actually for the listing fees, but for the extra trades that it generates on their platform. And we don't make our money from trading. So we don't need to fight them for that subsidy. We're happy to peacefully coexist with them. And our rules are completely compatible with that. So how do you think of that as a competitive business model? It's interesting. People always want to know, are we going to go burn that building in New York to the ground? I'm like, first of all, it's made out of marble, so... So probably not. But, you know, like, are we going to have our own building? Are we going to have our own animal on the front set? It's like, no, we don't think of it that way. We're not antagonistic towards the legacy exchanges. They're going to need to continue to exist. Philip Morris needs to be listed somewhere. You know, that's not our business. Our business is to help this next generation of companies. And so if people want to continue to do the incumbent listing, great. No problem. If they want to try to maximize trading volume, you know, that's not our business. We're not trying to get in the way of that. We hope our trading platform will be the premier venue for infrequent traders, right? If you trade three times a year, we're your platform. We want to have the best trade execution and superior pricing for you. If you're a high frequency or quantitative firm, we're not opposed to that. Just we're not the right platform for you. And so we think of our business as a high margin, low volume business. We're happy to make money by selling services, data, technology directly to companies and their long-term investors. How have you applied the lean startup principles to your own business this time around? This is a high degree of difficulty startup. It combines the worst of a multi-sided marketplace because you need a single value prop that works for the buy side, the sell side, for VCs, for companies and regulators all at the same time. Very difficult. It's highly regulated, maybe the most highly regulated kind of business you can build. It is technically quite difficult. It has a tremendous upfront cost before you can start operations. So it's a little bit like building a semiconductor fab or launching rocket ships to Mars, only it's completely intangible. You can't see it. At least when you build rocket ships, you get to show off those videos of the rocket ships taking off. When we got our SEC approval, nobody knew. The SEC just posted it to their website. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like no one could see it. So it's a very difficult business. So when I first started doing Lean Startup, people used to say, oh, well, sure, Lean Startup works for this, but not for that. Yeah, it'll work for consumer, but it could never work for enterprise. It works for unregulated, but it could never work for regulated. It works in America, but it couldn't work in Japan. But because I've had 10 years now of working with every kind of company you can imagine, I've seen all these pieces before. So I've done Lean Startup in financial services, in regulated environments, in multi-sided marketplaces. So we were able to really take advantage of that knowledge and say, yeah, this we're going to use Lean Startup in every particular. I think that's the most important to apply Lean Startup is whoever learns fastest wins. That's our bedrock belief. So going fast doesn't mean going fast in an absolute sense. Like if I'm building a dating app, we could go faster than building a stock exchange. The question is, can we go faster than our competitors? So could we get a stock exchange approved in record time? Could we figure out how to get to market faster? How, could we figure out how to get learning from customers faster? Can we find ways to prototype bits of what the exchange is for out of an exchange context? So I'll give you one example. We do events a couple times a year. You know, Ashby helps us organize called the Long-Term Investor Coalition. And we get the CIOs of asset owners in a room. Last time we had about $3.5 trillion AUM in the room, 10 CIOs, 10 private companies. We have them meet each other. And... Is that being a stock exchange? Well, it depends on your view. Like, are we trading stocks? No, we're not a broker dealer. These are not transactional meetings. But our mission is to create alignment between long-term investors and long-term oriented companies. So we can do that using this cutting edge technology called the room. Because I'm a technologist. The first time someone pitched this to me, Ashby was like, hey, we can get people together. And I was like, what, on some kind of platform? He's like, no. 
was like, what kind of technology will it be? Are they gonna, he's like, no, 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 in a room, in an actual physical room in San Francisco, in a, in a building. We could get them in a room and have them meet each other. And because we've become so intermediated away from each other, we often broker meetings of people who never meet. It's shocking to me. We need each other. Capital formation happens only when you know, bright-eyed entrepreneurs and long-term holders of capital partner together to build new sources of value. And we've gotten so far away from that, that's almost like we've forgotten that that's what it's for and we've become all about trading. The tail is really wagging the dog. So we use Lean Startup to kind of do those prototypes or MVPs in lots of areas of our business. What are some of the things you've learned in the experimentation that have helped you or that you've pivoted a little bit in your business model so far? Yeah, we've pivoted a lot. If you read that original description of the long-term stock exchange, it has three provisions. It's all about illiquidity, certain kind of voting structures, and executive compensation. So we've kept executive compensation is pretty much right on, but the other two we've changed quite a bit. First of all, I never heard of the national market system. I didn't know about UTP, and there was all these things I didn't know about back then. We learned a lot about how to design voting systems that really work for companies and for investors. And one of the hardest lessons we learned was that's really something that can't be one size fits all because there's like this holy war going on about dual class versus non-dual class versus this versus that, you know, quadratic voting versus... And it's just different things make sense in different situations. And so for us to come in with a one size fits all prescription, that really doesn't make sense. The other thing we learned the hard way, I tried for almost five years to give this idea away for free to the incumbent exchanges. I didn't want to build a stock exchange. It's a real pain. <laughs> it was a lot of work. That's not what I want to do with my time. But I couldn't get any of the incumbents to do it. I even went so far as to pursue partnerships with the legacy exchanges. I even consummated one of those partnerships and almost got to the point of having, having that become operational. This would have gotten us to market faster. And then through some shenanigans in DC, it ultimately didn't come to fruition and the partner withdrew and it was a big mess. And I spent a lot of time with my team as we were negotiating that partnership and building it, explaining to everybody, you have to understand this partnership is not a product, it's an experiment. It might work, in which case, great. But if it doesn't work, it's gonna teach us everything we need to know about what the problems are. Like what are the true, actual obstacles to get something like this to market? What will it actually take to get the regulators and investors and companies to yes? And because we framed our work that way, we made sure we had plenty of runway. So when the partnership didn't come to fruition, we were able to pivot and adjust to doing our own separate application and building our own infrastructure. And we learned a ton about the political environment, the regulatory environment, the specific of what the standards should be. And everything I told you earlier about how we have principles-based disclosures and it's not one size fits all. Like we really had to learn from that because our previous filings, because this is how the partner insisted we do things, you know, that everything has always been very one size fits all. Listing standards have always been very rules-based. And so we were able to kind of learn from that and adjust and get to a listing standards setup that's much better because it's principles-based, because it's more flexible, and because it's more aligned with what investors and companies both want. Well, I want to turn to some closing questions. But before I do that, if you had an ask for the people listening to this, who are generally a population of managers and allocators on both sides of this equation, to kind of help you build the brand and get knowledge and awareness out there, what would that ask be? We want people to join our coalition. This is a project that needs allies. I don't know if people listening really appreciate the extent to which the forces of the status quo are fierce and powerful, and they love it. We have all these intermediated forces. They love it when we fight with each other. So like when companies and long-term investors fight about dual class, a lot of people are real happy about that. It keeps us at each other's throats instead of being partners. And what we have done is ask people, would you like to be inside the tent helping us design these standards? Or would you like to be outside subject to these forces? And most of the financial system is oriented around broker dealers and traders setting the rules for the rest of us. And we wanna have one venue, just one institution, one venue where we could do it differently. So if anyone is interested, please get in touch. We welcome the opportunity to partner with and get more input from people who are on the front lines of these issues. Come, come join our coalition. And that's a great entry point in to see what we're all about. I obviously can only talk about certain things. We're highly regulated. So there's only so much I can speak about in a public forum like this. There's some other stuff that's pretty cool that we can talk about. Great. All right. A couple of closing questions and uh, we'll let you go. 
What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Oh, well, family is certainly number one for me. I have young kids, but if I ever have any spare time, it's for music. I love playing music, composing music. That's how I get away from all this Any stress. type of music? I'll do anything. I'm a big fan. What's your biggest pet peeve? People who complain about a thing but won't lift a finger to fix it. So I can't tell you how many people we meet who are like, this is a great idea or it's a terrible idea or you should fix it. And I'm always like, okay, well, will you help us? No. <laughs> and I'm always like, well, what's plan B? We're on a trend now where companies don't go public anymore. So the number of public companies has fallen in half. The trend is still going down. What, are we going to wind up 20 years from now with four public conglomerates and the rest is private? Like, what's plan B? If I get, I might not have the best solution, but what's plan B? Are you willing to do anything about it? And people who will only talk but won't take action drive me crazy. What reading do you almost never miss? I read technology news, obviously, you know, hacker news and that kind of stuff. I read the mainstream newspapers just to kind of keep posted on stuff. And then I read at least one liberal and at least one conservative, like ideological outlet to make sure that I kind of understand the political landscape and what's happening on both sides. Now, what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My grandparents lived through the Depression and the Holocaust. So, I mean, they were survivors. I had grandparents who were killed in the war and I had grandparents who fought for the U.S. and were in Japan in the post-occupation. I mean, they, they really lived that period of history. And the traumas that they experience, you know, they get handed down intergenerationally. So my parents always taught us to be frugal with our money, to focus on the things that we can control, to not get too distracted by things that could be that are ephemeral, that could be lost. I remember feeling like they were very old-fashioned. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, but that's old news. This is America. This kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. And now as I watch like the frothy 1920s-style insanity that's flying through Silicon Valley and obviously what's happening in the wider world... I have a newfound respect for that wisdom. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Absolutely <laughs> everything. The problem is my younger self was so stubborn that even if I could go back in time now and give him those lessons, he would have been like, shut up, old man. You don't know. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, that's just about everything. Yeah, I would like to have known it all. But then I wouldn't have had these experiences. I wouldn't have wound up where I was. Probably I had the chance to go work at pre-IPO Google and Facebook, both of which I turned down. So from an economic point of view, probably that would have been good advice. So don't take investing advice from me. I've turned down all the best, highest performing <laughs> investments of the 21st century. Great. Eric, thanks so much for the time. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 